Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. This morning, as I mentioned earlier in the service, some have called this chapter the Magna Carta of the Christian Church, and uh, this, this, the, the church in Acts 15, in, in its early stages, really, the New Testament local church is only about a decade old here, and is still in its swaddling clothes, if you will, or its infant stages there, just a, a young church, and she finds herself at a seminal, seminal moment in her history, a crossroads, really, that depending on what happens in this chapter, will determine the direction of the church for millennia, will determine what I'm preaching today and what you and I believe today, really, and we're going to see the church at a pivotal crossroads moment. By way of, of review, I'd like for us to review where we've been. Do we have the map that we had last week? I, I think we have that. There is, is, is there a slide of that map? Not back there. Um, for those that were here, um, that's my fault, but we, where we've been uh, is they are in Antioch. They're in Syria, and the church in Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were sent out from, uh, from the church in Antioch on their first missionary journey. They've gone, they sailed to Cyprus, they went all the way around, and they came back, they found their way back to Antioch. So in Acts 13, uh, Paul and Barnabas went out on their first missionary journey, and they went and preached the gospel, and churches were planted, and they've come back, and they're back in Antioch now, where they were sent out of, and where we picked it up in, in uh, chapter 14, the last verse of chapter 14, where we ended last week, verse number 28, the Bible says, and there they abode long time with the disciples. And they're there for a long time. And what's going to happen, they're here at the church in Antioch. This church was filled with Jews and Gentiles, really one of the first uh, multinational, multiracial, whatever you want to call it, uh, churches that we see in Scripture. There were the Jews and the Gentiles, the Gentiles being those that are just simply non-Jews. And we have Jews that had a very strong uh, uh, religious upbringing and belief and, and way of doing things, culture that, that for thousands of years. And now you've got the non-Jews, people that it would never uh, interact with each other, would never mingle with each other. Now they're in the same church together. The gospel of Christ has united them. The gospel of Christ has brought them together. And, and I've mentioned this multiple times through this series, but the gospel of Christ breaks down every cultural divide. It breaks down every social divide. It breaks down every socioeconomic divide. It breaks down every, all, all of those. The gospel of Christ brings us together. Those of us that know Jesus Christ as Savior, uh, we have a commonality, a bond that rises above any of those divisions that society may have impose upon us. And so they're in this church filled with Jews and Gentiles. And in chapters 13 and 14, if you want to go back and read it later, you can. It tells the story of their first missionary journey and what they did. In chapter 16, the next chapter, we're going to see them launch out on, on another missionary journey. Barnabas is going to go his way. Paul is going to go his way onto his second missionary journey. But in the middle of the first missionary journey, and the second one, we have Acts 15. In chapter 15, some business has to be taken care of. 
a question of supreme importance for the church has to be answered. In fact, it's a question of supreme importance for every person in this church today. It's a question of supreme importance for every person online that's under the sound of my voice and for every person that's in any church and for every person in America that's not in a church. Really, it's a question of supreme importance for every person living on planet Earth today. They're going to answer this question of supreme importance in chapter number 15. It is this question, do or done? Do or done? So we, we see last Sunday we left and they're abiding, they're in the church at Antioch, we don't know how long, but for a long time with the disciples. Well, what happened while we were, we were there? Let's pick it up in chapter 15. Would you read verse number one aloud with me? Acts 15, verse number one. Let's read it aloud together. Ready? Begin. And certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. What went on while they abode there a long time? Number one, we'll see three sections in the passage that we'll study today, the first 19 verses of this chapter. Number one, we see the dilemma. They're in a dilemma. There are some false teachers that have crept in. While they're there a long time, some men came from Judea. Uh, some men came up there from, from Jerusalem, from that area, and they were preaching. Some say that, that maybe they were believers that were misrepresenting. I personally believe, as Paul talks about this, this, this passage in Galatians 2, they were false teachers. I believe that because they're adding works to salvation, and if you're adding works to salvation, you're a false teacher. I don't believe they were believers because they literally said, unless you're circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, circumcision is, 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 a, is, is really a picture of saying, unless you follow the law of Moses, unless you go back and do all of the Old Testament law found in the Torah, circumcision was an easy way. People would say, I'm of the circumcision. Oh, he's not of the circumcision. It was an easy way to say, I follow the Old Testament, or I tried, nobody could follow the Old Testament laws, but I pride myself in how many of the Old Testament laws that I follow. And, and they were legalists. They were adding law. They were adding works to the free gift of salvation. You see, God has been working here mightily. Paul and Barnabas came back, and we saw it last week in verse 27. When they got to the church in Antioch, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. Gentiles were non-Jews. Anybody that was not a Jew was a Gentile. These people that didn't grow up with the law of Moses, these people that didn't grow up with all of the ceremonial laws and, and didn't grow up with all of the dietary laws and didn't grow up with all of these, the moral law, they didn't grow up with those things. They're now having their eyes open to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And multitudes are being saved. Churches are being planted. Thousands of people are coming to a saving faith in Christ. But the problem is they don't look like what the people of God had always looked like. They didn't eat the way the people of God had always eaten. They didn't dress the way the people of God had always dressed. 
They didn't talk the way the people of God had always talked. They didn't do the things the people of God had always done. And so there was this problem. There was a dilemma. These Gentiles coming to Christ. And, and, and we see here false teachers creeping in and trying to add something to the preaching of Paul and the other disciples and apostles. You can understand it and you can rest assured whenever God is working, you can expect opposition and challenges. These false teachers were adding something to the gospel. They were saying, if you really want to be saved, you've got to add Moses' law to it. In all fairness to them, this was understandable. It was understandable why they were thinking this way, because Jesus had changed everything. It was all that these Jewish people had ever known. The first Christians were all Jewish, and they had grown up with this. Jesus was Jewish. The old covenant people were Jewish. And Jews previously, if a Gentile wanted to convert to Judaism, do you remember Cornelius, that Gentile centurion that we preached about earlier? The Bible says he was one that believed. He was a Gentile that was starting to believe in the God of the Jews, the God Jehovah. He was searching after that. And whenever Gentiles would say, I want to join your faith, that they would always say, well, you have to, if you're a Gentile, you're going to have to be circumcised and you're going to have to adhere to the rituals of the Torah, the law in order to be accepted into our community that's what you have to do and so you can understand it was probably hard to understand this significant change but what they failed to realize was that the incarnation of Jesus Christ had changed everything he didn't come to abolish the law he came to fulfill the law but but you no longer had to do all of these things to be accepted in into that community and into God's sight the dilemma they faced was the same one that all of us face today. It's the same one that every person on earth faces today. Oh, no, maybe not the Jewish law. Maybe nobody came up to you and said, if you want to be a Christian, you can't eat that steak and lobster. Maybe nobody came up to you and said, if you want to be a Christian, you can't have bacon with your pancakes. No, it's, we, but we face maybe not the exact same look of the dilemma, but it's the same dilemma that we face today, the dilemma of adding something, some sort of works in order to earn our way to heaven. You see, the default mode of the human heart is works-based righteousness, not faith-based righteousness. That's the default mode. You go back through, through what, what do you find? Back to Cain and Abel. I want to choose my own way to have a sacrifice that is acceptable to God. I'm going, I think he'll like it this way. I'm going to do, this is what I'm good. I'm going to do this in my strength. And the default mode of the human heart has always been, since the fall, has always been more of a works-based righteousness than faith-based righteousness. We like, to, we like to be in control, don't we? We like to know, am I good enough? Can I do that? What can I do there? And, and that is, that default mode is do. There's something you have to do. We all want to know, what am I supposed to to do to get to heaven? What do I have to do to earn God's love? What, what do I need to do? And religions all around the world for centuries have thrived off of telling people, here's what you do. And if you do enough of this, and if you give enough of that, and if you pray enough this way, and you do enough good works, and you, you change the way you dress enough, and you keep enough of these laws, then maybe your good will outweigh your bad. That is a system of do. Tell me what to do and I'll, I'll do it. I want to earn it. How do I earn my way to heaven? If I give a lot of money, or will, will that get me in? Or, 
Or, or what if I do a lot of good? Will that get me in? Or what if I give myself as a martyr for jihad? Will that get me in? Or what if I say the right number of prayers? Or I confess my sins to the priest? Or I wear the right garments? Or I, I cut my hair the right way and I don't let it grow in a certain way? Or I make the right changes in my life? Church family and those watching online, every religion in the world can basically be boiled down into two categories, do or done. When you boil them down, it is either you're going to do something to earn your way in or you're going to trust the one who has done everything. And the reality is that true Christianity is the only done religion in the world. Every other religion has an element of do in it. If you run across any system of faith, I don't care if they call themselves Christians or something else, any system of faith that teaches that you have to do some works to earn your way into heaven, it is an unbiblical, false religion. That is what they're facing in Acts 15. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6? Jesus saith unto them, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. It's not of works of righteousness which we have done. It's according to his mercy he saved us. And and so this was the dilemma. Were they going to stay with their traditions, with their inherent biases, with the popular opinion of others, with, with the way that they had always done things? Or were they going to let Christ change everything? And isn't that our dilemma today? Are we going to stay with our traditions and our inherent biases and the way we've always done things and popular opinion and, and what the climate of the day is? Or are we going to let Christ change everything? So that's the dilemma. Well, how are they going to handle the dilemma? Number two, we're going to find the debate. Look at verse number two. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension. Sometimes just the verbiage of Scripture makes me laugh a little bit. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them. Basically it means they didn't take this lightly and there was a big blow up. There was a big fight. It was not a small dissension. This blew up quickly. Paul and Barnabas said, no, no, uh uh-uh. We're not letting this creep in. Nope, nope, nope. We're dealing with this. And there was no small dissension. It was a big deal. They started to argue and debate and, and to fight. And, and they said, you're wrong. And they couldn't come, in my opinion, they couldn't come to an agreement here. There were still some doubts. And not only that, I think Paul and Barnabas and the church understood, we've got to get this settled once and for all. Because if not, this teaching is going gonna, is gonna to go and it's going to corrupt and it's going to infiltrate um, churches in other regions. We've got to deal with this. And so verse number two, it says, they, they determined, when there was no small dissension, they determined, the church did, that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. That Jerusalem was the headquarters at that time of the church. It's where the church had had, had really started there with Jesus and the, the, the apostles, disciples, those in the upper room, Pentecost. And so you've got the church at Jerusalem. This is kind of ground zero of the New Testament local church. This is still where a lot of the apostles are and the, the ones that are the most seasoned ones. This is, this is where stuff is kind of emanating from. They said, we've got to deal with this. Let's go to Jerusalem and settle this once and for all. What, what is often called the Jerusalem Council or the Council at Jerusalem. Verse 3, And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenix and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. They went through and just made sure everybody knows. You guys realize non-Jews are getting saved, right? Like, it's, it's amazing what's happening out there. They were kind of building their case as they went along, making sure they had some, some groundswell of support with some of those churches. And they're letting them know, 
verse number four, and when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. You can jot this down. If you want to go back later on and, and read it, we won't for the sake of time today. This same account of this trip to Jerusalem is found in Galatians 2. And in Galatians 2, it tells us that Paul, he gathered privately with some of the important people so as not to put them in a spot that they would have to kind of dig their heels in, in a bad position. He dealt with them privately so they didn't have the pressure of public opinion. They could talk about it first privately. It shows a lot of wisdom. We don't always have to blow a hole into an issue. We can handle difficult issues and maybe even contentious issues with wisdom. And so here it says, when they got there, they, they, the, the apostles and elders, they declared all things that God had done with them. They're talking to the leaders. Verse 5, but there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed. I do believe these were Christians here. They were adding after salvation. They said it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Talking about those that had already been saved. I think the ones, my personal opinion, the ones in verse 1 were false teachers. I think these Pharisees are Pharisees. They had a great knowledge of Scripture that had actually believed, but they were still adding works, legalists, after salvation. They were saying, hey, we need to make sure we got to get these Gentiles. We're glad they got saved, but we got to get them with the program. We got to get them dressing like we dress and eating like we eat, and we got to get them looking like we look. That's, that's what we need to do in order to, for them to be what they're supposed to be. And verse number 6 and the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. Notice the first part of verse 7, the first six or seven words. And when there had been, what are the next two words? When there had been what, church? When there had been much disputing. You see it? When there had been much disputing. This wasn't a simple fix. No small dissension, disputation. Now there's much disputing. And now what we're going to see they decide they're going to go there to, to Jerusalem. They're going to deal with it. Now we're going to see three people or groups of people that are going to speak to the issue. The first one is Peter. We're going to see Peter's testimony, verse 7. Now remember, before we look at verse 7, Peter, one of the most highly respected of the 12 apostles, really one of the leaders of the apostles. Peter, the one that had preached Pentecost. Peter, the one that had preached to Cornelius, really opening the door to the Gentiles. Now, Peter was an apostle to the Jews, but really the door of the gospel a decade earlier opened to the Gentiles because of Peter's preaching to Cornelius and his household. We studied that a few months ago. So Peter, when Peter stands up, this isn't just nobody. This is somebody that the church of Jerusalem highly respects. They know that God has used him in ways maybe unlike almost any other of the 12 disciples. They know Peter's history. They know Peter's knowledge. They know Peter. Peter, this is a big deal. And Peter, it says in verse 7, Peter rose up and said unto them, men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago, hey guys, I thought we dealt with this a decade ago. Why are we still dealing with this? You know how that a good while ago, God made choice among us. This was not our choice. God did this, that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He said, you know, I would not have chosen. In fact, you remember the, those that were here, or you know the story, the vision of the sheet where all the unclean animals came down. And what did Peter, God said, eat those unclean animals. It was a picture of God saying, go preach to the Gentiles. And what did Peter say? He said, not so, Lord. No way. I, I can't preach to those people. His inherent biases were coming out. Oh, no, 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 no. Those people don't deserve the gospel. They're not my people. And what did God say? It happened three times. 
And God said, no, I want you to go preach to the Gentiles. So Peter's saying, hey, guys, you know, you know me. I wouldn't have chosen to go to them. I didn't want to go to them. God told me. This was God's plan. He said God made choice that we would preach the gospel to the Gentiles. He continues on in, in verse number eight. This is beautiful. And God, here it is, God which knoweth the hearts. Guys, you don't know the hearts. You don't know who's truly saved or not. God does. And God bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did unto us. We talked about that. And with Cornelius' household, it was kind of like the Gentile Pentecost. The Holy Ghost came on those believers, and the Jewish believers were amazed. What? Gentiles can have the same Holy Spirit that the Jews can? Everybody, the gospel's for them just as much as it is for us? And he said, guys, I didn't give the Holy Spirit to them. God did, and he's the one that knows ours. He wouldn't have given it to them unless they were saved. Hey, guys, God has shown us Gentiles can be saved without the law of Moses. They don't have to follow all these rules. Verse number nine, he put no difference between us and them. And for us, that doesn't feel like that big of a statement. For the Jews, that is the biggest statement in the world. He put no difference between us and them. You see, they were raised, and in fact, to this day, if you go to Israel, the, the very Orthodox Hasidic Jews to this day are raised to believe there is a very big difference between the Jew and the Gentile. I was in Israel the first time I went, and, and I was with a man that had served, had, had lived there and served in the culture. And, and he told me there was a little girl that fell down, and, and I went to go kind of help her up. And he told me, he said, that's a very offensive thing for a Gentile, for them. Not for every Jew, but for the very Orthodox Jews. That's an offensive thing for a Gentile. They will very often not even give you eye contact. They won't look because, again, their view is the Gentile is unclean. This is the culture they're dealing with. And he, him saying this at this council, he's speaking to all of the leaders of the church, and he's standing up and saying, guys, there is no difference between the, us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Verse 10, now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? What is he saying? Not one of Peter's Jewish listeners there had been saved by the law. Not one of them had been purified from their sins by the law. Not one of them had received the Holy Spirit by keeping the law. He said, not one of you have had your lives transformed by the law. The law is not that which cleanses us. The law is, show, is that which shows us we need cleansing. And he says to them here, he says, why are you putting this yoke upon them? None of our fathers could keep all these rules and not one of you. You know it that you've not kept all these rules. Why are you telling them they've got to keep all these rules? Why are you tempting God? And this is beautiful. Read verse 11 aloud with me. He gives a great, great statement of what we need and how we, how, we, uh, how we know that we have eternal life, how we become Christians, children of God. Verse 11, would you read it aloud? Ready? Begin. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved even as they. We believe that it's God's grace that saves us. It's the same for them. We sang all about grace this morning, didn't we? And Peter stands up and says, guys, what are we doing? Why are we complicating the gospel message? God made it clear. 
but, but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved. And may I say, if you're, you're online or you're here this morning, that is still the only way that anybody can ever be saved and have their sins forgiven, can ever truly know that when they die, they'll spend eternity in heaven. It's through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Any church that tells you you've got to do this or you've got to do that, you've got to give this in the offering, you've got to make this change in your life, you've got to go here and clean up your act in this way, anybody that tells you that is not preaching the gospel of the Holy Bible. They're not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're preaching a false religion. They're preaching man's wisdom. They're telling you, you have to do. Peter is telling them, it is done. We believe it's the grace, not our works. Why are you giving them works? Not only Peter's testimony, but then we see in verse 12, Paul and Barnabas' testimony. Paul and Barnabas' testimony. Galatians 2 tells us Paul and Barnabas brought Titus with them. Titus was not a Jew, he was a Greek. There from the island of Crete, he comes with them. Titus had been saved. Verse number 12, then all the multitude kept silence. What Peter had to say was pretty heavy, made them really think about it. And now Paul and Barnabas stand up and they gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. By the way, the false teachers didn't have those miracles and wonders. God allowed Paul and Barnabas to do miracles and wonders to give credibility to their ministry that it was of God. And the things they had done, none of those that were disputing with them could stand up the same way and say, look how God has used us. They just said, here's what we think from the way we were brought up, from what we read, here's what we think. And Paul and Barnabas said, hey, by the way, Paul said, I, I, I know the Jewish law better than any of them. I was higher in the Jewish religion than any of them. He says that later on. And, and you can see that, I think it's in Corinthians. But, but they didn't have it. And by the way, when they say that, you know what I believe they did when you read Galatians 2? They had, hey, Titus, come on up, bud. I want to introduce you. This is Titus. Here, Barnabas, give Titus a mic. Titus, tell him, when did you get saved? And he gives him the date. Now, now Titus, tell, me, tell him, where did you grow up? Where, did, where were you born? Well, I, I'm a Greek. So were you brought up reading the Torah? No, sir. Did, did you, after you got saved or before, did you, did you get circumcised or change anything? No, sir. Did you follow any of this? No, sir. Do you know for sure if you died that heaven would be your home? Absolutely. It was the greatest day of my life. And it's pretty hard to argue when the one whose life has been changed, you're staring him in the eyes and you say, well, I don't believe you. And he's standing up there and saying, God completely changed my life. And they say here, they tell him what miracles and wonders God wrought among the Gentiles by them. And then we see not only Peter's testimony and Paul and Barnabas' testimony, but then lastly, we see James' appeal to Scripture. Verse 13 and after they had held their peace, James answered, James, the half-brother of Jesus, who most believe wrote the book of James. He was a central figure and leader at the church at Jerusalem. He came to, he came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ after uh, his half-brother had, had died. He starts to talk now, and, and he was highly respected, one of the leaders of the Jerusalem church. He said, men and brethren, hearken unto me. Verse 14, Simeon, the Hebrew name for Simon Peter. He's talking about Peter. Simeon hath declared how God at the first did visit the Gentiles. You've heard Peter tell us about what he did to Cornelius to take them out of them, to take out of them a people for his name. Verse 15. And to this agree the words of the prophets. By the way, it's not just Peter's words. The ones that we kind of worship, our prophets, our forefathers in the Old Testament, they said this was going to happen. He takes them to Amos 9, if you want to read later, Amos 9, verses 11 through 12. As it is written, 
After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord. Here it is. And all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things, known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. What what does James tell them? He says, Peter told us what he's experienced, but guys, I'm going to take it a step further. The prophets were expecting this. The prophets prophesied that non-Jews were going to come to Christ. Why are we fighting against this? They said they're going to come. God's going to break down that middle wall of partition. God is going to open it up, and they're going to come to a saving faith in Christ. He takes them to the prophets, and he says in verse 18, Known unto God are all his works from the beginning of the world. This seems really new to you guys. And often in human nature, new is bad. And the Pharisees and the Jews, Jewish believers and the Jewish false teachers, they were standing up and saying, this is bad, Gentiles getting saved. And, and James tells them, he said, this is not new to God. God prophesied this hundreds of years ago. God told us this was going to happen. Hey, guys, Peter's testimony agrees. Paul and Barnabas' testimony agrees. Titus agrees. The prophets agree. And so we see the debate. James appealed to Scripture he reminds them what Peter, Paul, and Barnabas have said is in line with the old, what the Old Testament prophets taught. By the way, any doctrine that we believe, we should make sure that it's in line with what Scripture teaches. It wasn't just Paul and Barnabas and Peter's experience. Experience is a very bad way, and feelings and emotions a very bad way to make your doctrinal decisions. Now, Paul and Barnabas and Peter did appeal to experience. But James said, here's the key, guys. Their experience doesn't only contra- it doesn't only does it not contradict Scripture. It actually agrees with and fulfills the prophecy from the Old Testament. We can know it's true because it doesn't contradict Scripture. If any belief that you or I have contradicts Scripture, it is not true. I don't care how we feel about it. I don't care what everybody else thinks about it. And then we come lastly to the last verse we'll look at this morning. We saw the dilemma, the debate, now we see the decision. Here is why this is such a seminal moment. They're going to decide right now, is following Christ a matter of do or done? Do we have to keep doing to earn his favor, to earn his love, to earn his forgiveness, to truly be saved? Or is it done? Did Jesus Christ, when he said, it is finished. Did he mean it? Is it due or is it done? By the way, in Galatians we see, I believe, legalism is not just something that affects us in our justification or salvation. Legalism can also creep in after salvation in our sanctification. Paul said, having begun in the spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? That human heart that wants a works-based righteousness, it can pop up all along our Christian journey. Boy, I think I want to be better than that one, and I'm going to look better and look at me and look at our church and look at what I did, and boy, I did that. The Bible still tells us that all of our filthy, all of our righteousnesses is filthy rags. Is it do or done? Now we're going to see the decision. Verse 19, James, one of the leaders here at the church at Jerusalem, after much disputation, this wasn't two or three guys in a back room making a deal. This was the entire group of leaders coming, and here's what it says in verse 19. Wherefore? My sentence is, here's the decree, here's my decision, wherefore my sentence is that we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. Here's what I say. What's the decision? It's done. Stop teaching do. 
Stop telling them they have to do something. It's done. Here is my sentence, he said. My, and we'll, we'll study. It's a colon there. We're not going to finish the sentence. We'll get into that next Sunday morning. But my sentence is, we trouble not them which from among the Gentiles are turned to God. Don't add your yoke. Don't add your legalism. Don't add your laws. Don't add your traditions. Don't add your upbringing. Don't add any of that to the good news of Jesus Christ. It is Christ and Christ alone. We just have to accept his finished work. That gospel is the good news of Jesus' death burial and resurrection he paid the price for your sin once and for all and completely 2,000 years ago the Bible says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done that he saved us but it's according to his mercy that he saved us for by grace Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 for by grace are you saved through faith that not of yourselves it is a gift of God lest any man should boast because guess what if I could earn my way to heaven don't you think I would boast about it well, I'm one of the best people you ever met. I made my way in. Look at what I've done. Look at my portfolio. Look at my, my resume. Look at my long list of good deeds. And he said, oh, no, it's a gift. That way none of us can boast. Well, I'm better than that one. None of us are better than any of them. We're all sinners deserving eternity in a place called hell. And Jesus came from heaven to die in your place and mine, to pay the price of sin, to die on the cross, was buried three days later. He conquered death. He rose again so that you and I one day can rise again as well if will accept the free gift of Jesus Christ. He said, it's not of works of righteousness, which we have done. It's by grace through faith, lest any man should boast. Jesus plus nothing. It's not mostly Jesus and a little of me. A bridge to heaven that is built of 99% Christ and even only 1% of any human work breaks down at the joint and ceases to be a bridge. It is all of Christ. Church family, as we close it up here, from this passage, what do we learn? A couple things. Well, number one, we learn that it's done, not do. But you know what we learn when considering what you believe and why? Go with God, not man. Let me say that again. When considering what you believe and why, go with God, not man. Because you'll find men that will, will corrupt. And I'm not saying we don't listen to a godly preacher or let them lead us and guide us. But go with God. When, when, when it's concerning what you believe and why, go with Scripture. If what you've always believed contradicts Scripture, go with Scripture. If, if, if what you've always believed contradicts the popular, I'm sorry, if, if, the, if, if the popular culture contradicts Scripture, uh, go with Scripture. If what you were brought up with contradicts Scripture, go with Scripture. If what you were always taught contradicts Scripture, go with Scripture. If your preconceived notions or your innate biases uh, contradict Scripture, go with Scripture. The great news for you and for me, what do we learn from this passage, is that the payment for your sin and for mine is done. Religion tells you do. Jesus said, I already did. Turn to me. You don't have to clean up your act to become righteous. You need to accept my perfect righteousness, he said. You don't have to work for forgiveness of sins. You need to accept my free gift of forgiveness of sins. You don't need to turn over a new leaf. You need to let God make you a new creation. Man spends all of his energy in trying to do more, be more, do better, be better. By the way, Christ in us will make us better. The fruit of the Spirit will come out in us. We will end up doing more for him. We will end up making a bigger difference. But it's not in our own strength and it's not in our own righteousness. It's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Man spends all of his energy trying to do more, be more, do better, be better. Jesus says all of your righteousness is his filthy rags. Accept what I have done. You can't make it to heaven on your own. 
And it's why this is one of the most important chapters in the history of the Christian church. Because they had to decide, is it due or is it done? So what will you do with Jesus this morning? One of the men of our church recently shared this illustration regarding salvation. I thought it was helpful. I close with this. The story he told was three people on an airplane, three guys on an airplane, and they realize the airplane is having some problems and the airplane's about to go down. And sitting right by the door of the airplane, they realize they're going to have to jump. Sitting right by the door of the airplane, there are three parachutes. One for each of them. There's a parachute provided for every person on that plane. And they each have a decision to make. What will they do with Jesus? And the first one approaches the door, looks at the parachute and says, I don't believe in that. I don't think that thing will do me any good. He says, he jumps out and he begins to flap his arms as hard as he possibly can. What do you think happened to that guy? Hit the ground. And by the way, that's exactly what the picture of you and I when we try to earn our way to heaven We're not going to have any success. We're not going to make it there at all. The second guy walks up and and looks at the parachute, and and he doesn't discount the parachute. He, He actually believes, I know that parachute will save me. I know, I believe that parachute would work. I believe that parachute would help me. But you know what? It's just not for me. I believe it, but I'm not going to accept it. I'm not going to put it on for myself. Now, the difference, the first guy didn't believe it, thought he could, he could take care of it on his own. The other one believed it, but decided not to put it on for himself. What do you think happened to the second guy when he jumped? Same thing. Same exact thing. And, and, and by the way, how many people have been given the good news of Jesus, believed that it was true? I believe God is real, but failed to make a personal decision to accept him as their Savior. The third guy walks over, looks at it, and says, I know that's what I need. That's the only thing that can save me. My arms won't save me. There's nothing. I need to put that parachute on. And he makes a decision to take the parachute, to put it on. He jumps out of the plane and pulls the ripcord. And what happens to that guy? He's saved. Church family, every person listening to this, maybe in the future on an archive or the podcast, if you're listening to this, we are all faced with a decision. Jesus Christ has paid, it's done. He has paid the payment for our sins and we have a choice. Are we going to say, I think that's all a, a bunch of hogwash. I think that's, that, that, that's not really for me. That, that, that parachute is not, it, it's not gonna help me. That's just for people that need a, a crutch. Those people, I can do it in my own power. God is just a crutch for the weak. What we'll find is we will, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. We will pay for our sins with eternity in a place called hell according to scripture. Or you say, oh, I believe it. I go to church. I, I believe it's real, but I've never accepted the free gift. I've never put it on. It's not going to do you any good either. But the one it will do good for is the one that says, I need that. I believe that is what I need and puts it on for themselves. The parachute was available to all three of them. It only did good for one of them. By the way, God is not willing that any should perish. He's got a parachute for every one of us. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That The question becomes for you and for me, have we ever put on the parachute of salvation that only Jesus can give? If not, why would you wait another moment? Because may I tell you, the plane of our lives at some point is going down. 
We don't know when, we don't know where, but it's appointed unto man once to die. All of us will die someday. Why wouldn't we put on that parachute of salvation, that gift that only Christ can do? It's do or done. Have you ever accepted the gift of done? Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.